we have this symbiotic relationship between scripture and tradition that we're going to unfold. And uh, you're making a great point there and one that I didn't think to even put into this lesson today. Okay. So thanks. I thought maybe you were just saving it for five episodes from now when yeah, we're still it, on yeah, the same topic. Yeah, and now Seth's going to ring the bell like crazy. I just know it. Yeah, sorry but, uh, about that. Anyway, ding, uh, ding, I, ding. I guess I shouldn't mention Seth in the middle of the show, but nah, maybe not. He's the invisible partner of this program. Yeah, he's like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Okay, L let's begin here, Matt. He'll give you a real brain, by the way. Go ahead. Hello and welcome to another historic episode of On the Journey, where we explore, in this case, a sacred tradition unlike any other. Hello, friends. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley, and we are with the Coming Home Network. And if you appreciate what you're hearing and watching, then please do consider subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, come visit us in the Coming Home Network's online community, chnetwork.org. Click on Connect and come see us. Ken and I hanging out there all yes. the time. And yes discuss these kinds of issues with people who are interested in such things. And Ken, we are now on part three of our series on Christian authority, and we're going to spend a little time on this question of tradition, which we only really scratched the surface of last week. That's right. The The series is Scripture, Tradition, and Magisterium. But if I may, there's only one thing I would like to correct that, that you said in your introduction. I don't uh -oh. think that people listening should consider subscribing. I think they should just do it. It's a that, mandate. That way you get one little item out of the way and you don't have to think about that anymore. Okay. Submitted anyway. for your approval. Actually <laughs> uh, demanded for your compliance. There you yeah. go. Okay. So scripture, tradition, and magisterium. We spoke briefly about scripture. We didn't need to go into depth because Protestant and Catholics both agree that God's word is inspired and authoritative. Then we moved on to tradition. And we began our discussion of tradition last week by focusing, Matt, on two questions what exactly does the Catholic Church mean, first of all, when it speaks of tradition? That is, what is this thing, tradition? And secondly, where is it to be found? And the simple answers to sort of recap are these. What is tradition? Tradition is the substance of the apostolic teaching as it was communicated to the church in ways other than writing. Let me say that again, okay? What is tradition? It's the substance of the apostolic teaching as it was communicated to the people of God in ways other than writing. That is by the apostles preaching and teaching when they were there, by their example, and by the institutions that they established. Okay? I think it's important to make a distinction as to what we mean in the specific context when we use the word tradition mm -hmm. as it is used in, in in regard to Christian authority, because the word tradition gets used in a lot of different contexts and a lot of different ways throughout all kinds of, well, yeah. I mean, gosh, I just invoked the masters, right? In the beginning of this, uh, you know, there's a great tradition of a particular kind of golf, right? At a particular yeah. setting or a tradition yeah. that uh, maybe you have of, you know, always eating a certain thing on a certain holiday. This is a very specific kind of tradition. So, when people talk about being anti-tradition, mm -hmm. this, that, or the other, we need mm -hmm. to make sure that we know what we mean when we're talking about 
well, tradition it, in the context okay, it's, of authority. It's good that you it's good that you make that clarification because yeah, we're not talking about what we might say small t traditions. You know, um, we're talking about we're answering the question: What does the Catholic Church mean when it speaks of sacred tradition? Capital T, capital S, capital T, sacred tradition. Okay, and that's what it is. And then where is it to be found? The answer is in the doctrine, life, and worship of the church. In, in other words, if sacred tradition is the substance of what the apostles taught in ways other than writing, that is through their preaching, through their example, through the institutions, then where is it to be found would be in the church's doctrine, that is what it received from them, in the church's life, in the church's worship. Or as the Catechism puts it in paragraph 78, through tradition, the church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she believes, okay? Now, as I've mentioned a trillion times now, the image that really made this real to me, Matt, um, that is just stuck in my brain as being a great image for this is the image of St. Irenaeus that he used in his second century work against heresies when he said, for the apostles like a rich man in a bank deposited with her, that is, with the church, most copiously, everything which pertains to the truth, and everyone who wishes draws from her, again, the church, everyone who wishes draws from her the drink of life. What he's saying is that because the apostles, yes, by their writing, but also by their preaching, by the example that they gave, by the institutions they established, because the apostles in these ways, scripture and tradition, deposited within the church everything that pertains to the truth. Whoever wants to find the truth knows where they can go to get it. They can go to the church to get it. That's what Irenaeus is saying. This kind of goes back to what we were saying about baseball. Baseball is a game, and at a certain point, you're like, we should write down the rules to this. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you learn it. I mean, you could learn it from books, and you could learn it from people teaching you and the coach yelling at you. The point is, all of it together resides in the church. That's what Irenaeus is saying, okay? Before we move forward to making the case, which I, I hate to say is going to begin next week. Next week, we will begin to make the biblical, historical, rational case for the church's view of Scripture and tradition. But what I want to do today is develop this teaching further by thinking with you, Matt, about the relationship between Scripture and tradition within the Catholic worldview. That is, the question I want to ask is, how exactly do these two interact? How exactly do they relate to each other? Okay? And the first thing to understand is this. While the Church views sacred Scripture and sacred tradition as distinct entities, they are distinct, because both of them flow from the same divine source, that is the apostolic teaching, they are seen as being closely connected to one another. That's the first thing. The church sees them as distinct entities, but distinct entities that flow from the same divine source, that is the apostolic teaching, the apostolic doctrine, the deposit of faith. And therefore, they are viewed as being very closely connected to one another. Again, reading from paragraph 78 of the Catechism, this living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition. Since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. And then 
a bit from paragraph 80 as well. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with the other for both of them flowing out from the same divine wellspring come together in some fashion. Okay. <laughs> I kind of love that. I think it's, it, it's well said at this point, you know, both of them, because they flow from the same divine source, the same wellspring of the apostolic faith and the apostolic teaching. Scripture and tradition come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. And we're going to get into this a lot more, but it is sacred tradition that tells you that we should pay attention to the writings of these people from the apostolic era, right? I mean, yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. not to jump too far ahead, but no, the that's fact one that of the believe, ways in which they relate, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, St. Augustine says something to the effect of, I would not have believed in the authority mm -hmm. of the scriptures had not the Catholic church told me that they should be trusted as authoritative or something like that. Uh, that's Augustine right. Says. That's right. Yeah. So the, the, so the, we have this symbiotic relationship between scripture and tradition that we're going to unfold. And uh, you're making a great point there. And one that I, didn't think to even put into this lesson today, okay? So thanks. I thought maybe we were just saving it for five episodes from now when yeah, we're still it, on yeah, this same Yeah, and now topic. Seth's going to ring the bell like crazy. I just know it. Yeah, sorry but, about uh, that. Anyway. Ding, uh, ding, ding. I guess I shouldn't mention Seth in the middle of the show, but yeah, maybe not. He's the invisible partner of this program. Yeah, he's like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Okay, let's begin here, Matt. He'll give you a real brain, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> you and I have mentioned previously that while Protestantism tends to be a religion of the book, quote-unquote, due to its focus on Scripture alone. Catholicism tends to be a religion of the Word. And the reason is this. Rather than focusing on Scripture alone, as though the Church derived all of its knowledge from the Old and New Testament documents and nowhere else, Catholicism focuses instead on the apostolic deposit of faith as it was communicated in every way, that is, as was communicated to the church in writing, but also through the apostles' preaching, again, through their example, again, through the institutions that they established, the mode of worship, the liturgy that they put into place. In other words, while scripture and tradition are seen as distinct entities, they are also seen as being closely connected since they flow from the same divine source, the teaching of the apostles. And as a result, the Catechism can say, and this is something that makes a, an, an evangelical Protestant shudder with horror, but as a result, the Catechism can say in paragraph 82 that the Church to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Not just, not just the Holy Scriptures. The Church doesn't derive her certainty only from the scriptures, but also from what the apostles, from the tradition, the apostles' teaching, their example, the institutions they established, as they are preserved in the church. So we have sacred tradition and we have sacred scripture, both closely related to one another. But now what we want to get into this is how exactly do they function together? Okay, we know they come from the same source, the same divine wellspring. We know that they're closely related but how exactly do they function? Um, we read in paragraph 80, again, that they come together in some fashion. That's what I'm wanting to dig into here. They, they come together in some fashion to move toward this goal of the church being in full possession of the apostolic faith. But how exactly do they function together? What is this in some fashion 
that the catechism is referring to. And so we're going to look at two sides of the coin here. The first side of the coin is this. Scripture obviously informs the church's understanding of the apostolic faith. Scripture informs tradition. That's the first side of the coin, right? As we read from the Catechism last week, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it was put down under the breath of the Holy Spirit, as it was put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. In sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment, see, scripture is informing the church, and her strength, for she welcomes it not as a human word, but as what it really is, the word of God. In sacred books, in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. Scripture informs the doctrine, the life, and the worship of the church. There's no doubt about that. In fact, because I, I, I want this to be very clear and I want this to be emphasized, especially for our Protestant brothers and sisters that may be watching or listening, because Scripture alone is inspired by God, we don't speak of tradition as inspired. We use that word, you know, God breathed from 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. Since Scripture alone is inspired by God, Scripture retains a position of primacy over sacred tradition. And because of this, the Catechism, quoting St. Jerome, has no problem declaring that, and I'm quoting now, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Okay? Holding to the primacy of Scripture, the Church has no problem insisting in the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation from Vatican II, that, I'm quoting, the study of the sacred page should be the very soul of sacred theology. Get that? The study of the sacred page should be the very soul of sacred theology. And the church would completely insist that nothing in the church's teaching can possibly contradict what is written in the inspired word. So Catholics and Protestants agree on the primacy of Scripture. I could say the ontological primacy of Scripture. And as such, Scripture definitely informs tradition. And got that the, side. the document you're quoting from is Dei Verbum, which I would encourage uh, every Catholic to read, first of all, but every mm -hmm. non-Catholic Christian to read, because I, I think you'd find yourself saying amen to the vast majority yeah. of it. Uh, yeah. and among other things, it also says that every Christian, every Catholic should be picking up the Bible and actually reading it. Uh, yes, which it does say another, that. Another misconception that sometimes people have about you know, what the church feels about I, how Scripture should function in the life of her believers. So That's right. That's right. So it, it quotes Jerome. It, it says that the sacred Scripture, the study of it, ought to be the heart of sacred theology. It encourages all Catholics to read the Bible, all of that. Okay, so we're talking about the way in which Scripture and tradition, sacred Scripture and sacred tradition function together within the Catholic worldview. And on the Scripture side, we say Scripture informs the tradition. Okay, Scripture teaches the church and continues to teach. Now, the other side of the coin, though, goes like this. At the same time, tradition functions as an interpretive key to Scripture. Tradition assists the church in understanding the meaning of what is being communicated in the pages of Scripture. And I want to say that again. Scripture functions as an interpretive key. I mean, tradition functions as an interpretive key to Scripture. Tradition assists the church in understanding the meaning of what is being communicated in the pages of Scripture. Now, this is the one, again, that would make an evangelical's hair stand straight up on end. Um, 
This is something that I came to very slowly over time, and I wanted I want to develop this. As a Baptist, Matt, the teaching of Scripture, at least as I understood it, was all that mattered. And because I agreed with the Westminster Confession of Faith, I looked to Scripture alone to interpret Scripture. You know, the rule of interpretation is Scripture interprets Scripture. And the truth is, I cared very little to even know what the early, what the early church had believed. I didn't really care to even know. When I think about it now, it just cracks me up. But I didn't really care to even know what the church at the end of the first century or the begin or the middle of the second century really believed. It was only over time that I came slowly to see that it was only reasonable to think, reasonable to think that the doctrine, the life, the worship of the early church might function as an interpretive key to the New Testament writings. So to back it up a little bit, you would say we don't want to—I mean, you might even say it subconsciously. We don't want to go back and look at what some people hundreds of years ago had to say about the Scriptures. The Scriptures are here for us right now. We right, can just open right. them up and read them. Uh, but I would be curious, Ken, when you had your conversion to Christianity, do you remember what version of the Bible you were given? Like, um, I think it was a New American Standard version. Okay. So you believed that whatever the folks at the New American Standard Bible Commission thought was the best way to interpret at least the yeah. words yeah. into English, yeah. you know, was trustworthy, right? So you believed yeah. implicitly in the authority of them to be to serve as an interpretive key for yeah. you yeah. in helping you understand what it said in English, whereas I... I uh, trusted the folks at the New International Version's 1984 commission. It's just what I did. Yeah. But, so, so we subconsciously uh, yeah. do this anyway, even if we're not doing it formally as, as is well, stated in the Catholic sub- Church. We're implicitly relying on authority of one kind or another, yeah, to, to put it together. But, but, but clearly, the way I thought as an evangelical was, I've got my Bible. Okay, now they're working with the Greek text, and they're doing their very best job to, to give me a translation. But still, it's the Bible. It's the Bible alone. That's what I look at. I let Scripture interpret Scripture. And the point that I really want to emphasize, though, is it never crossed my mind to think that the faith and practice of the early church would or should function as a context for me to understand the Bible, or certainly not an interpretive key. Um, This way of thinking, a a more Catholic way of thinking, it began when I read and when I pondered what St. John Henry Newman said in his essay on the development of Christian doctrine about how the faith of the early church should be taken as a good indicator of what the apostles had actually taught. Okay. A good He's, indicator. That's an understatement, yeah. right? Yeah, he just said that. I mean, the faith of the early church ought to be taken as a good indicator of what the apostles had actually taught. This is what this is how Newman put it. Till positive reasons grounded on facts be adduced to the contrary, the most natural hypothesis is to consider that the society of Christians, which the apostles left on earth, were of that religion to which the apostles had converted them. In other words, it just kind of makes common sense to think that one should be able to look at the faith and practice of the earliest church in order to see what the apostles had taught them. Otherwise, basically you're saying, I trust the apostles, but I don't trust anybody that they taught and converted. Yeah, yeah, I trust the apostles, and then bam, that is it, okay? Well, this got me thinking then, okay, it was, it was reading Newman's essay and hearing him say this, 
that got me thinking. And the more I thought about it, the more it made sense to me that this would be the case. Um, let me give my illustration from the epistle or from the church of Ephesus. I think about the church of Ephesus. According to the book of Acts, Paul spent no less than three years in the city of Ephesus preaching and teaching. Um, we read in Acts chapter 20, night and day with tears. Okay, so here's Paul in the city of Ephesus, night and day, probably a little exaggeration, but it's making the point, night and day with tears, preaching for three years. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, we're told that during those three years, Paul was able to, co to communicate to the Ephesians the whole counsel of God. Think about that. You know, the entire plan of God. Paul was able to describe for them salvation history from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through. He told them everything, okay? Now, I want to be clear. Scripture informs tradition. What Paul wrote to the Ephesians when he finally wrote his six-letter, I mean his six-page letter to the Ephesians, what he wrote to the Ephesian Christians, it, it is a part of the teaching they received from him, okay? It's a part of that teaching. It informs what they understood and what they know. It obviously informed their understanding of the faith as they had learned it from Paul's preaching and example over three years. At the same time, here's the flip side. There's no doubt in my mind that the understanding, the prior understanding that the Ephesian Christians had of Paul's teaching from those three years in which he had been pounding on them day and night with tears and, and Eutychus fell out the window. I don't think that was in Ephesus, but you know what I'm saying, right? Uh, it, there's there's no doubt in my mind that the that the that the understanding the full understanding that the Ephesian Christians had of Paul's teaching from those three years of him being with them his example all of that that this would have been broader that this would have been more extensive than what Paul is able to say in those six pages of his letter to the Ephesians in fact when the Christians re, I mean when the Ephesians received that letter from Paul they would have naturally read Paul's letter in the light of everything they already knew, everything they had learned from Paul over three yeah. years. And everything they knew would have functioned, I mean, this is factually the case, it would have functioned as an interpretive key as they read Paul's letter, helping them to understand the things he was saying. No you know, doubt you, about that. You and I know dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have gone on to pursue graduate studies somewhere. Uh, mm -hmm. get a master's degree, get a doctorate degree, and often they will choose a school based on who the professors are because they mm -hmm. read their book and they're like, this is good stuff. Uh, I feel like I want to study under yeah. this person. And the substance of what they get in the class is actually studying under that person is a lot more significant and comprehensive than what they've gotten just by reading that person's thoughts on a topic. Uh, you know, And yes. so <laughs> there's a sense yeah. in which Paul is writing on a couple of topics. But the substance of what Paul communicated to Ephesus took three years to to sink in with them. And and there you cannot pretend that that doesn't matter, that all we care about is what Paul wrote. Yeah, uh, I the mean, church it's, in it's, Ephesus is a strong, one of the strongest yeah. Christian communities. It shows up in the book of Revelation as well. It's as impossible being to called conceive, out by Christ. It's impossible to conceive of the Ephesians not reading Paul's letter when it came years later through the grid, if you will, or in the light of everything they knew from, from the three years he was with them, teaching them. It's impossible to think of that. Okay, so 
this is how it began to make sense to me as I read what St. John Henry Newman said, as I thought about this church in Ephesus, as I just thought about the situation. It began to make sense to me that the tradition would function as an interpretive key, okay? But this went in even deeper when I began to think of how this actually helped me to interpret the New Testament. That is, looking at the tradition, how it actually helped me to interpret. Now, I want to give a good illustration of this, and I'm going to go into a little bit of depth, depth on it, and then you can pop off with whatever you got, okay? But I'm going to talk about baptism for a few minutes to, to give a concrete illustration of how this formed in my mind. As an evangelical Protestant, again, of course, I only thought in terms of Scripture interpreting Scripture. I mean, I would look at Scripture in the light of the historical, grammatical situation, the cultural setting, but it was Scripture interpreting Scripture. I didn't think of the doctrine of the early church, as I said a moment ago, as providing context for actually understanding what the New Testament letters were saying, okay? And I didn't realize how functioning in this way, Scripture alone, Scripture interpreting Scripture, how functioning in this way led me on certain subjects to minimize the teaching of the New Testament. And this is what I want to give um, uh, the um, illustration of baptism for. Um, okay, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. The crowds are cut to the heart. They say, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I, I would read these words, and a reasonable question that would occur would be this. Is Peter saying that the Holy Spirit is given in baptism? Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. I go on in the book of Acts, and let's say I'm reading Acts 22, verse 16, where Ananias says to Paul, Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins. And again, the question could come, it would, it would reasonably come, is Paul teaching here, I mean, is, is this passage teaching that sins are washed away in baptism? You know, Ananias says, arise, Paul, and be baptized and wash away your sins. Is this passage teaching that sins are washed away in baptism? One more passage, Titus 3.5, where Paul says, he, that is God, saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, strange phrase, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. And once more, a reasonable question coming to me might be, what's Paul saying here? I mean, is Paul just using figurative language? Is he describing regeneration as some kind of washing when he says, through the washing of regeneration? Is Paul making an allusion to baptism, possibly, and referring to it as the washing of, regenera of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit? And again, even with that, you have to think, what's the interpretive lens through which the translators are bringing that language to us? Because the translation I use yeah. says, not washing of generation, but bath of rebirth. Yeah, okay, let's, <laughs> right. say, I'm, let's say I'm reading it Either straight way, from yeah. the Greek. Well, yeah, let's say I'm reading it straight from the Greek, but the question still is, what is being said here? I mean, is he just using figurative language to talk about regeneration, or is he making an allusion to baptism? And now, as an evangelical again, I would read passages like this, Matt, and I would think to myself, well, here's sort of the process of thought. I would think, hmm, 
Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Uh, Peter, Peter might be saying here that the gift of the Spirit is given through baptism. Acts 22 might be saying the sins are washed away in baptism, or Titus. This might be an allusion to baptism, but I can't be sure by simply reading the words themselves. Okay, on the page, whether it's in Greek or whether it's the English translation, I can't be absolutely positive that that's what these passages are saying. And so my tendency would be to take the more minimal reading or what I would have considered the safer reading, okay? And so what, I, what I'm saying is that the way I approached Scripture, I, realized, I began to realize, had this built-in tendency for me to take the lesser reading for fear of going beyond. You know, the, that's the main thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to read more into the passages than what was there. And so I would say to myself, well, I know that at least baptism symbolizes the washing of regeneration. It symbolizes the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I'll, I'll just stick with that. I'll take the minimum reading, the minimal reading, that, that baptism is symbolic of these things for fear of taking the maximal reading and saying, no, Peter is saying that in baptism we actually receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? I understand exactly what you're saying because I took the same approach. Um, and, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that the versions of Christianity that I was getting uh, tended mm -hmm. to be sort of altar call Christianity uh, in the sense that mm -hmm. all of the whole kit and caboodle was reducible to, the, to answering one question, and that is, what must I do to be saved? Right. Right? right. That's all that matters. All this other yeah. stuff is just like, you know, it's just icing on the cake. But what must I do to be saved is the most important thing. And so that minimalist, I would never ask that question about other aspects of life. I would never say to myself, well, what must I do intake into my body to survive? Well, obviously, mm -hmm. I need vitamins and minerals, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess I take um, three pills a day in order to no I, I don't. I ate a Popeye's spicy chicken sandwich for lunch because I don't want just the minimum. I want the gloriousness and the gratuitousness of what is offered to me at at Popeyes. It's the same thing with with Christianity. Very much, uh, at least in my particular experience, in my efforts to not go beyond the scriptures. I often, looking back, realize I didn't go as far as the scriptures, and that goes yeah. in a number of different ways. Right? I was never as bold as the psalmist in my prayers. I was never as uh, mm -hmm. radical in my understanding of communities sharing their sins with one another, as you see in the book of James or or in, uh, you know, the upper room after the resurrection of yeah. Jesus when he gives. Uh, there's all kinds of things that I squished down and didn't go as far as because well, in a, in a previous conversation, beyond. in a previous conversation, I think you mentioned the idea of confession, that you would read those passages. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. And you're thinking, you're thinking, well, this could be, I mean, th this could be teaching something like the Catholic do doctrine concerning confession. But I can't be absolutely sure. And so I don't want to go beyond. And so I will minimize it. And I'll say, I'll say what most evangelicals say. Well, all that these passages are saying is that the, the apostles are going to preach the gospel and those who believe the message will have their sins forgiven, you know? Or even though uh, it's just, the even broader it sure application, sounds like more than that. A broader, broader application, well, he's not really speaking to the apostles. He's speaking to all Christians. Yeah, he's know? just saying if you believe, you will, yeah. 
Right. You know, get them minimizing. Okay. So back to baptism. So reading these passages that clearly might be saying something like baptismal regeneration, the doctrine Catholics believe. And yet I wasn't sure from the words themselves and I didn't want to go beyond. And so I would minimize and take the minimal reading this, what I would have considered the safer reading. Okay. But now scroll forward a bit in time. I'm beginning to understand now how scripture and tradition function together in the Catholic worldview. I'm beginning to understand how tradition is viewed as providing an interpretive key to scripture. And I'm beginning to read the early church fathers. And I stumble upon Clement of Alexandria saying this, when we are baptized, we are enlightened. Being enlightened, we are adopted as sons. Adopted as sons, we are made perfect. This work is variously called grace, illumination, perfection, and washing when we are baptized. It is a washing by which we are cleansed of sins, a gift of grace by which the punishments due our sins are remitted, and illumination by which we behold the holy light of salvation. Okay, so all these passages from Acts that I was referring to were popping off like light bulbs in my brain as I read Clement of Alexandria, basically saying, yeah, this is what happens in baptism. And note, I, by the way, that this is not contradictory of Scripture. No, no, when I found no, it these, contradict I was expecting to find I was expecting to find contradictions in these first apostate Christians from the first few right, centuries, right. and instead what I found was just them doubling down on all the, the stuff that, oh, I don't know what he's really saying here. Yeah, it's a filling out. So. It's a filling in the colors to the whole thing. I read St. Justin Martyr, and I read where he talks about how in baptism we go down into the water and we are regenerated. I'm thinking about Titus 3.5, Paul's statement, the washing of regeneration, the washing of new birth. I hear Tertullian summarizing the four basic gifts that are given in baptism as being the remission of sins, deliverance from death, regeneration, and bestowal of the Holy Spirit. And then I go on to read early church historian J.N.D. Kelly, and I find him insisting that baptism in the early church was always held, uh, this is a quotation, always held to convey the remission of sins. Okay, In, in other words, I absorbed myself in the early church's view of baptism, the doctrine of the early church, the faith and practice of the early church. And then when I came back and I reread those passages in the New Testament, in the light of this doctrine, I found myself thinking, Peter, what Peter says is what he means. When Peter says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's what he means. You know, that's what he's saying. And when Ananias said, Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, that's what he meant. And definitely in Titus 3, 5, when Paul speaks of the bath of rebirth or the washing of regeneration, he is making an allusion to baptism. And when you're looking at a guy like Clement of Alexandria, uh, I can't remember when he's writing. It's in the first, it was the second. 200. He'd, he'd be, yeah, he'd be the, the third century. Yeah, 200, um, yeah. But he's doing so in Alexandria, the church uh, that was founded by um, the gospel evangelist Mark, mm -hmm. right? So either his community has gone so far afield from one of the people who wrote the actual, yeah. you know, earliest gospel, or he's just, you know, building on what he was taught. 
by that apostolic community, which is one of the clearest, you know, historical yeah. connections with the the people of the New Testament. And you and I have done a whole series on baptism in the past where we quoted six or seven or eight or ten passages like these from the early church fathers. But you're exactly right. Here's Clement down in Alexandria, Egypt, and he's talking this way. Okay, well, maybe Egypt went astray. Maybe Egypt had warped out the teaching of the apostles. The only problem is St. Justin Martyr is saying the same thing up in Rome. Tertullian is saying the same thing. St. Ignatius is saying the same thing in Antioch of Syria. Quotations from all over the Roman Empire are saying the same things about baptism in the 2nd century, the 3rd century, and the 4th century. So tradition really does seem to function as an interpretive key to Scripture. The faith of the early fathers, in other words, it really does provide a context, and it should, for understanding what is being said in Scripture. Uh, Here's how the uh, Catholic apologist Patrick Madrid puts it in his book titled Scripture and Tradition in the Church. This is how Patrick put it. The Catholic teaching is that tradition is both congruent with Scripture, i.e., it conveys the same substantial content as does Scripture, okay? It's congruent. Tradition conveys the same substantial content as does Scripture. And then he says, in a sense, it supplements Scripture. Not by adding more material, it supplements Scripture by supplying its meaning. Okay? In other words, tradition supplies a context within which the meaning of things that are said in the New Testament can be better understood. I want to read that one more time just to hear his words The Catholic teaching is that tradition is both congruent with Scripture, that is, it conveys the same substantial content as does Scripture, and, in a sense, it supplements Scripture by supplying its meaning. And then, uh, I guess, the coup de grace, in a way, was reading J.N.D. Kelly, his classic early Christian doctrine, where he says that this is precisely how the early church understood the relationship between Scripture and tradition. In other words, this is not just making sense. This is precisely how the early church understood the relationship between Scripture and tradition. In his early Christian doctrines, this is how he puts it, Scripture and scripture and the church's unwritten tradition were identical in content. You see the same thing that Madrid said. Identical in content, both being vehicles of the revelation. If tradition is a more trustworthy guide, this is not because it comprises truths other than those revealed in Scripture, but because the true tenor of the apostolic message is there unambiguously set out. And okay? if the tradition didn't believe that, then why would they have put forth, you know, in the late 4th century, a list of New Testament books that they said, this is Scripture and everybody needs yeah. to be taught from it? Um, right, as right. You know, I laugh because, uh, you know, as you're quoting from Pat Madrid, and he says, you know, uh, Scripture and tradition convey the same substantial content. Well, tradition actually supplies the table of contents for the New Testament. I mean, <laughs> yeah, how yeah. how is it that we have decided that Matthew should go before Mark, should go before Luke, should go before John? Not only the books, but even the order is something that the tradition sets out for us. Um, yeah. And we we're trusting that the tradition. table of contents. We wouldn't say the table of contents is inspired scripture itself, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's tradition that gives us the table that gave us in the end, the table of contents. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're if you wondering why Philemon's in there, blame the tradition. 
so, explain the tradition. So, so, so scripture and tradition, this is an important point to make, I guess, as we're beginning to wrap up. It's not that tradition uh, brings in a bunch of new information that isn't in the Bible, either implicitly or explicitly. It's not that we say, okay, we've got what's in the Bible, but then tradition gives us a bunch more information. It's, I, I, I really like, even though it's kind of bold, I like the way J.N.D. Kelly states it. He says, if tradition is a more trustworthy guide, again, that makes the hair of an evangelical curl and stand up and fall out, turn white like mine. If tradition is a more trustworthy guide, this is not because it comprises truths other than those revealed in Scripture, but because the true tenor of the apostolic message is there unambiguously unambiguously set out. In other words, I could read those passages in the New Testament making allusions to baptism, just a few words making statements that I just wasn't sure what they meant, but I read in the early church fathers and they state flat out, in baptism, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, we are regenerated. You know, in, in baptism, the bath of regeneration takes place. In other words, the true tenor of what is being said in Scripture is un- unambiguously set out in the tradition of the church. So, when I was deep in study, I want to bring a little story in here. When I was deep in study of the Catholic faith, I know I've told you this before, Matt, so if you want to lay down and rest. Okay, I was collecting tons of quotations from the early church fathers that, that were supportive of the Catholic faith, and I gave them to my wife, Tina, and I asked her to type them up. So she was sitting there at the computer typing up all these passages on the Eucharist, all these passages on baptism, all these passages on this and that from the early church fathers. Well, one night in church, it was after the Sunday evening service, somehow there were about 20 of us in the sanctuary sitting there, and, the, and baptism came up. There were, A conversation ensued about the doctrine of baptism. And I don't even remember what was being said, but it, but at one point, my wife, you know, like pops up, she raises her hand and she says, well, you know, Polycarp said, and, and she, she begins to qu- quote some arcane, you know, phrase from Polycarp because she had become this, you know, this early church scholar by typing up all these uh, quotations. She goes, well, well, Polycarp says, and she goes, blah, blah, blah. She begins to say whatever. Well, one of the men in the group just threw up his hand. And he said, ah, Polycarp can go fish. You know, in other words, I, I tell this story because I think it illustrates so well how most evangelical Protestants think about the value of early church history and how they think about the value of the teaching of the early church. I mean, even though some of these early church fathers were disciples themselves of the apostles, even though the early church may have been completely unanimous on certain of these teachings, I mean, it spread all over the Roman Empire, at a time when there's no internet, no telephones, no, no uh, you know, teletype, no nothing. Even this, even given this, the feeling among most evangelical Protestants, I have to say, I was one for 20 years, the feeling is that all that matters is what the New Testament says to the point of Polycarp can go fish. St. Ignatius of Antioch, he can just go right on to Rome and get, get, get himself ground up like bread by the, uh, by the, the animals for, for all I care. It doesn't matter what they said. All that matters is what the New Testament says. So I believed the same thing as an evangelical Protestant. I was not a crazy Baptist like you, obviously, in the Wesleyan you were crazy Methodist. tradition. I was a crazy Methodist, crazy Nazarene, uh, crazy holiness movement and all that stuff. Yeah, I would have said all these things, but I want to say uh, that practically uh, this is not how I actually 
worked it out. There's a great article, and I encourage uh, viewers to go mm-hmm. check it out. Rod Bennett has put uh, together kind of an imagined dialogue uh, in article form on our site, and it's a few years old. But mm-hmm. in it, he basically imagined this conversation between a couple of seminary students. You know, and one guy asks the other guy, so uh, it's a seminary you go to pretty good? And the guy says, yeah. He says, well, how do you know it's a good seminary? He says, well, because they teach the truth there. He's like, well, how do you know they teach the truth? He's like, well, I've examined it, and I know that what they're saying is consistent with Scripture. And, of course, the next question is, well, if you've examined this tradition and have decided that it's consistent with Scripture, why aren't you teaching them? Right? (laughs) Why are they teaching you if the the decision as to whether or not they're teaching a faithful interpretation of this is based on whether or not you think they are? Then, like I say, this is, I wasn't conscious of this, but yeah, this is yeah. exactly, exactly what I was doing. I mean, Polycarp can go fish. Anybody can go fish. I know I like C.S. Lewis, right? He was fine. But that's yeah, because Polycarp he taught the right thing about the because, scriptures. Because Polycarp can fish because he sounds like a Catholic. You know, Tertullian can go fish because he sounds like a Catholic. C.S. Lewis, wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Because I say. He, even though he sounds like a Catholic too half the time. But well, that's too. another subject that's to true. get into. Yeah. Yeah. So. But this kind of illustrates um, how I felt, and I, you know, I, you call me a crazy Baptist, and I call you a crazy Methodist, and now I'm a crazy Catholic. Okay, we're all crazy. We all can be crazy, but but the point is to understand the distinction. As an evangelical, that's how I viewed the world. All that matters is what I see being taught in the pages of Scripture. I don't even care what the early church believed. Okay, well, Catholics don't believe in sola scriptura. Catholics don't look to Scripture alone to understand the meaning of everything said in Scripture. Rather, and quoting again from paragraph 80 of the Catechism, sacred tradition and sacred Scripture are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out from the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal, and that's why the Catechism can also say that the Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Scripture alone. Yeah, alone is, is the key word there. Yes. So, from the Scripture, yes. From the Scripture alone, no. It goes back to our discussion about faith. Faith, yes. Faith alone, no. There's this whole yeah. mosaic of things that all kind of fit together. And without spoiling too much, because I know there are probably a lot of people saying, well, you've only made like 10% of your case, you know, in a course of like 40 minutes. So uh, I just want to make clear to our listeners, we are not done with the topic of tradition, are we? No, and I'm not making the case. I, I'm not even making the case. Well, what, what, what we've done last week, answering the question, what does the church mean by sacred tradition and where is it to be found? And then answering this week, how do the two tradition and scripture relate to one another? How do they function together? Is all really descriptive. I'm just, we're just describing how the church views these things. Next week is when we will begin to make the case. All right. Should be a lot being, of fun. For, for them being true. Okay. All right. So stay tuned for that. Right. That's going to be a party. In the yep. meantime, I uh, hope you've gotten something out of this. Hope it's maybe answered some questions, maybe provoked a few new ones. Who knows? Um, either way, we would love to hear from you. Come over to uh, chnetwork.org and uh, actually come to our community and visit us in there. It's a, a, a online social network that we just run uh, through the Coming Home Network for mm-hmm. people who are interested in questions like these, and that's community.chnetwork.org. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Share with a friend. 
And in the meantime, I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks so much, Ken Hensley. We'll talk to you again next week. You got it. <laughs>